Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Welcome to episode 4-421 of the Run Run Live podcast. Today we have a good show for you. I talked to the coach about how to manage the off-season, which is how most athletes treat this time of year. Good practical stuff, good practical discussion for you. In section one, I'm going to review the science and the opinion around fasting and how it interacts with us endurance sports athletes. And in section two, I'm going to talk about how to actively cultivate peacefulness, your inner peace, because I think it's appropriate. It's an appropriate message that we need to hear this time of year. We are also going to talk about testicles. Yeah, or lack thereof, because that's just where I am in the never-ending carnival that is my daily life. Ollie the Collie is doing very well. He had his surgery on Monday, so he's officially neutered. And you would think that would slow him down a little bit. And it did for about a day. Uh, But he is and was quickly back to his maniac ways. So I've been hunting around now for our next training opportunity. I mean, he's a great, smart, athletic boy. But I need him to learn some simple stuff like come when called, or we are both going to get into a lot of trouble, especially when I have him out running with me. He loves to destroy stuff, anything laying around the house. If we're not watching, Ollie will tear it up for us. He's very mouthy, loves the taste of human flesh, but I mean, who doesn't, right? Who doesn't? But it can get annoying, especially in mixed company. When I was at the vet this week for his adjustment, I asked for a recommendation on other training, and they gave me a contact that they highly recommended. They were over the moon about this trainer. So I conversed with this trainer, and their program was to, they take the dog for three weeks, and they board him, and they deliver him back fully trained. No muss, no fuss. It's all turnkey. Sounds good, right? They just show up three weeks later and hand you the keys to the car, or the dog, I guess. The only problem that I had was that they wanted uh, $3,500 for this service, which I'm sure is quite reasonable, but it's above my price bracket. Clearly, I'm starting to become that old guy who expects everything to cost a quarter or a nickel, right? 
But anyhow, we are going to another consultation with a trainer today, and we'll see where that goes. And another funny story is when I try to do yoga or a core workout in the house, Ollie thinks this is just great. This is an opportunity to wrestle on the floor. And it is impossible to do this with him in the house. It's funny, but it's impossible. And again, who doesn't love a good wrestle on the floor, right? You can't blame him for that. So that's Ollie. But continuing our theme of testicles, I had a fairly hilarious sponsorship opportunity this week. I got an email from one of those outfits that is trying to make money off of podcasts by aggregating a bunch of niche shows like mine and selling them as a package to sponsors. And this story might be considered a little PG-13, so you've been warned. Now, I don't do sponsorships in general because, A, I hate commercials in my podcasts, not just mine, but any podcast with the burning hate of a thousand suns, and B, I just don't have enough downloads to move the needle money-wise. I mean, it would be hatefully annoying to you folks, a big hassle to me for about 20 bucks a month. It's just not worth it. But the example sponsor that they dangled out to me as attractive commercial bait was a company called Manscaped. Intrigued, I looked them up, and yes, they are a new company offering everything you need to create lovely topiaries in your nether regions, which is a bit amusing, but the names of their products had both my wife and I howling with laughter. So their main product is an electric shaver called, wait for it, the lawnmower. <laughs> Isn't that great? The lawnmower. A, uh, a body wash comes with this called the crop cleanser, <laughs> and they have a hydrating toner called Crop Reviver, subtitled Ball Toner, and a an, an anti-chafing product called Ball Deodorant. Uh, <laughs> and the website copy in general is just a delight to read. So there you go. A gift for the man who has everything, except hair on his nether region. And they didn't even have to pay me. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. On fasting for athletes, what I have learned. Now, there has been a lot of noise in the social sphere around fasting as a practice for a couple of years now. And at first, I mostly dismissed it as another diet fad. Yeah, especially as it was championed by those West Coast Illuminati. You know, crystals, chakras, the lot. Nouveau riche tech wannabe hippies. But despite this, I kept an eye on it, open mind, and tried to tease out the facts from the hype. I've been playing around with fasting this fall. And I'll give you the general consensus as I see it, so you potentially can avoid being taken advantage of and can use fasting as another tool in your toolkit. I think what makes fasting seem very different is the methodology of fasting flies in the face of some of the tenets of healthy eating methodologies from earlier consensuses. The party line, so to speak, has been to eat healthy, lots of fruit and veg, avoid processed foods, and eat a lot of small meals during the day. 
with fasting, all of this is still true, except the lots of small meals during the day part. So we, so we have to be careful because there are two important outcomes here that people are looking for from all this. First, and this is why it piques the social interest, is the weight loss aspect, and we'll look at this. The second is the impact fasting has on your overall health, things like disease resistance and basic health markers, and we'll look at that too. But as endurance athletes, we have a third outcome we're concerned with. How does this fasting interact with our training and racing? And we'll talk about that as well. So what is fasting? Well, basically, fasting is going without any food for extended stretches. But here again, we have to be careful of our definitions. There are different versions of fasting. The first I'm going to call a long fast, and this is where you restrict your food for 24 hours or more. Typically, people will do this one to four times a year, and they'll do something in the range of one to three days of restricted calories. The second is intermittent fasting, which is getting a lot of press, a lot of play these days. And this is restricting food for shorter periods of time, 24 hours or less. And a version of intermittent fasting that is popular today is a circadian fasting cycle where you only eat in a set window during the day, let's say 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Got it? There's your types of fasting. So for people who want to lose weight or lose fat, fasting can really help. Your body wants to burn all the available free sugars first before it turns to that deeper fat store. And most of us endurance athletes already know this. But fasting allows normal non-athletes to get to that fat-burning cycle without having to run a 100-mile race. What are the perceived and verified benefits? Well, all these forms of fasting have been shown to help people lose weight and to positively impact their other biomarkers. And although the clinical research on humans is light, there's extensive data from rat studies and anecdotal reporting that supports positive results. So the conclusion is, it does help you lose weight, and it does make all your biomarkers uh, look better, makes you healthier, and it makes you more disease-resistant, right? That's sort of the conclusion, the soft conclusion. But here's a caveat, and you knew this was coming, right? You only get these results if you incorporate fasting into a healthy diet. You can't fast one day and gorge on candy and potato chips the next day. That doesn't give you any benefit. But like everything else, fasting as part of a routine of healthy diet and exercise does seem to have those positive effects. So the most positive thing is that it is a diet tool that works for some people. And if it works for some people, great. Maybe it'll work for you. Maybe not. Going deeper, though, these longer fasting periods, they seem to cause some interesting adaptation at the cellular level. And again, I'm going to turn to the endurance athlete metaphor to explain this. So whenever we train for an event, a race, we go through cycles of stress and recovery. Our body is stressed out by that long run or hard workout, and then it recovers stronger and more resilient for the next cycle of stress and recovery. For these 
longer fasting periods, a similar thing happens. You are putting your body into a nutritional stress state, and this seems to cause cells to dig deeper, burn fat, and it seems to lead to an adaptation that essentially makes your cells tougher and healthier, and thus the better biomarkers and the higher resistance to disease. So what's my experience in this? Well, One thing I totally am on board with is the intermittent circadian fasting. My biggest challenge has always been eating at night, and circadian fasting directly addresses this. It's essentially saying, don't eat at night. (laughs) So, duh. But I also tried this in the morning as well. The name of the game overall is just to shorten your eating window that produces some positive results. So it doesn't have to be draconian. 12 hours is a great starting point. Don't eat before 8 a.m. or after 8 p.m. Done. In the morning, I found that it helps to delay that first meal until after 8 a.m. because then it keeps you from getting hunger pains later in the morning. So it, it, it reduces the overall eating activity. And all you need to do is just drink black coffee instead until 8 o'clock and then have your first meal. If you're going to do longer fasts, you got to be careful. You still need to take in fluids and some nutrients. You can't just starve yourself. A lot of these folks drink a lot of black coffee, teas, that's popular stuff, along with like bullion and salt and vitamin and mineral supplements, low-calorie stuff with minerals and vitamins. Uh, that's how they do these longer fasts. Now, I did try a longer fast. I went for 24 hours. I went from dinner to dinner. And what I found was that the first couple hours, you think about food a lot and you do have some hunger, but after a few hours, it doesn't bother you. And I didn't really feel any deleterious effects. It felt very similar to that point in a multi-hour training session when you get deep into fat burning. That same feeling where your head's a little, yeah, a little light, but you have steady energy and you're okay. And this is... The transition now to the final part of our discussion, how does this interact with our training and racing? Good news. As endurance athletes, we practice intermittent fasting all the time. If you've done any longer fat adaptation training, you are essentially fasting. This will also make it easier for you to try fasting because your body already knows how to efficiently burn fat for fuel. I would be careful doing hard or long workouts when you're deep into a fast period. I have no science around this, and I may be proven wrong, but it seems like your body would need some nutrition to rebuild after a hard workout or a hard effort. So I'd stay away from speed work or racing during a fast. But you can certainly push the line a little bit to become more fat adapted and burn more fat. For example, if you're doing a circadian type fast and not eating anything at night, not eating anything early in the morning, you can get up in the morning and run before you eat. And you may feel a little heavy and a little lack of free energy, but your body will figure it out and you'll burn a ton of fat. It can be part of your fat adaptation process. And you can experiment with going for low-effort aerobic efforts in conjunction with your restricted calorie periods just to see how it feels on your body, how your body responds to it. It's a good tool to have. It's another tool that, when used correctly in conjunction with a healthy diet and an active lifestyle, can have positive impacts on your health. So, as always, you are unique. 
You are an experiment of one. Test it out on yourself. Tell me how it goes. And now for today's featured interview. So, Jeff, when you give us the 200 words or less on uh, who you are and what you do, just to refresh people's memory, although it's not your first rodeo here on the podcast. No, no. Um, I've been coaching runners and, and triathletes now for 24 years. I started yeah. as solely a running coach and then moved into triathlon and have been doing it um, ever since. So you got any runners at the CIM this weekend? Yeah, I got a young guy from Oklahoma who's running CIM. Is he trying to qualify? Well, his long-term goal is to qualify. He's young, so his qualifying standard is an aggressive number. This time, we're going in there just to, to knock 15 minutes off his PR. And, you know, that's going to put him a couple of minutes short of qualifying. But I believe in sending him in the race is realistic. I don't think he can knock almost 30 minutes off his time his first time out around. So Right. Yeah, he's had a great training cycle. So I think 315 is is really doable for him. Yeah. It's a learning experience, right? It takes kind of takes the pressure yeah. off. Let's them execute a less emotional race. So I was reading your site there, and I saw a blog post that I thought was very useful for people right now. And I wanted to talk through a couple of aspects there, a couple of aspects of this. The first one being the concept of periodicity in your training, and not just inside the training cycle, but across the whole year. Right. And so talk right. a little bit about the different phases in sort of a long cycle as opposed to a short cycle. Well, I'm a big believer in a 24 to 30 week training cycle for any race that you do. I think people forget. I don't care how, how greatly conditioned you are going into one race and you come out of that and you want to have another great race. You basically go back to the beginning. And to me, the beginning is always starting with, with two thought process in mind. And one is, is developing your aerobic capacity, your slow twitch fibers, and your economy. I think the word economy is something that really gets overlooked throughout the, the early parts of a training cycle. And then when you move through those two cycles, then we get into a little bit harder work. And the whole process of periodization is, is to develop it's muscular adaptation, right? And it's cardio adaptation. It's not just go out and run, 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 run. And, and oftentimes I think too many people think, well, the space stuff is too slow for me. I don't want to do that. And again, a lot of people get confused in a base cycle where they're doing workouts, but they're not really getting a workout, right? And because they're running too slow or they don't understand what their heart rate zones are and they don't understand what they should be achieving in each workout and they get bored and they want to move right into more intense workouts. And, and eventually those more intense workouts, sure, will increase their ability to run faster, but it will increase their ability to run faster longer. Yeah. And I think part of it is not just the less perceived quality, right? It's psychological. So there's this perception that you're not doing any work and also the volume's lower too, right? You tend to do more cross-training and, and stuff you normally wouldn't do. And there's a reason for that, right? Sure. Uh, this time of year, as we get into the base, and, and I call it the base now in the economy phase, right? You want to teach your body how to be as economical when you're performing as, as anything else. And what happens is in this early part of the base training I'll have people work on form, whether they're a triathlete or a runner. I have them working on form. 
and technique. And a lot of times when you change your technique, your heart rate elevates. And you yeah. get back and you say, geez, coach, you know, my heart rate was too high. I say, let that happen. We're developing a new technique. We're engaging different fibers, different muscles. And as that happens, your heart has to make that adjustment. But over a period of weeks, that adjustment will get made and you'll drop back down into your norm. And this is the time of year that it's really good to do that because you're in that off-season mode and you're losing a little bit of fitness, which we talked about earlier, and that's a good thing, not a bad thing. So this time of year, it's about, hey, how do I really get better going into next year? What are the things I can really do to get better for next year? And I always say, well, base and economy, and where do you want to start? What about psychologically? People hate to lose that fitness. And if you're coming off a fall race, maybe in October or November, then you're you're saying, okay, I'm going to back off and do something different. Psychologically, people hate to, to lose that peak fitness, right? Oh, sure, of course. And, you know, none of us want to get, quote, unquote, out of shape. Here's one of the things I think. I, I think people don't research enough. And I have my athletes, you know, I say, here's an article, read it, because this guy's smarter than me, so read his article. And you'll see, if you look at what elite athletes do, elite athletes always have a period in between A races where they lose fitness. Because you might be losing a little bit of fitness, you might be putting on a couple pounds, but at the same time, your body is recovering and completely repairing. So when you start out in that next phase, you're going in that next phase with a fresh, healthy body, and you actually see gains quicker. And that's a very hard thing to get people to understand. You know what, hey, you'll put on five pounds, take it a little bit easy, let's do some other kind of work just to keep your body in reasonable shape, and then we'll get back into a training phase. They go, oh, geez, gain five pounds. And it was a great example. Or, you know. Yeah, or 10, yeah. You know who was a great example of that was, uh, who I can't think of the fighter's name, Hands of Stone, Roberto Duran. Between fights, Roberto Duran would gain 25 pounds. And then when he'd start training, he'd cut his weight back down to get ready for the next fight. And he always went into the fights in, in great shape, except at the end of his career. But there's a great example. If you're a triathlete and you, you look at what the Rennies of the world do and the Danielle Reefs of the world do at this time of year, they're taking a couple of weeks off. In July, if they're trying to qualify for Kona, they'll race their last race in July and they'll shut down for three or four weeks just to lose a little bit of fitness and then in August pick it back up to get ready for October. So losing fitness is really a good thing in gaining fitness, as crazy as that sounds. So how does this work for the ultra guys? They like to be able to step into a 24-hour race at any point, right? So they have this sort of baseline fitness. Like I have the baseline fitness where I can basically step into a marathon and jog a marathon any day of the week, right? Not that I'd want to do that, but I could, right? And the ultra guys are the same way. They can step into a 50-mile race or a 24-hour race at the drop of a hat because they have that fitness. How's that different than your competitive marathoner trying to break three hours at Boston? In reality, I really don't think there is much of a difference because of, of the difference in the conditioning level. These guys and gals who are 100-miler and 24-hour runners, they've been there, they've done that. And just like you said, you can step into a race at any time and you know you can finish a marathon. They actually have that same mentality. Okay, well, if I want to just go do something, I'm going to go do it. Now, do I want to do something competitively? Then I have to make the adjustments and go back into the training cycle just like anyone else. But I think we underestimate the power of our mental ability and where we've been and what we've done to, to carry us through that next obstacle. As you said, I could, I could go out tomorrow and say, I'm going to run a marathon and I haven't done much training in the last three or four months at all, but I could go out and muddle my way through a marathon just because I've done it so many times. And yeah. I, I think that applies to just about anyone who has the confidence and in their ability to do that. 
Yeah, and I think there's something basically human about the periodicity. I think it's seasonal, right? So I think as humans, we need to go through cycles and you can't hold your foot on the pedal or near the edge. You can't train near the edge all the time, obviously, but I think these bigger cycles, these longer cycles where you let yourself get a little less fit, psychologically, I think that matches the way we are as sort of seasonal mammals, right? Yeah, I agree with that. And again, to have the foot down on the pedal all the time isn't where your biggest benefits come from. It's conditioning that cardiovascular system and conditioning your body to be more economical. And I've told people for years, the, the bigger the base, right? We say this all the time, the bigger the base, the higher the peak. And we know for a fact that it's our slow twitch fibers that carry us longer and stronger than the fast twitch fibers. And our fast twitch fibers wake up overnight. So to be out challenging the fast twitch fibers and not developing the slow twitch fibers in our body and the cardiovascular system is probably one of the biggest mistakes that a lot of age groupers make. I remember, you probably remember back in your day, well, back in your day when we were young and in our 20s, it was no pain, no gain training, right? Because we didn't have the science that we have today. And I tell people all the time, I, I, geez, I can't imagine what kind of race times I might have run if I knew of the science of training that I knew today. I'm sure you remember going out going out before a race, the day before the race, you're out running one mile repeats, right? Yeah, yeah. Or the week before, anyhow, I'd have that volume pretty high right up until the race, but I'd also have a whole lot more volume, a whole lot more quality. And the other thing we used to do, besides running races every week or every month, the other thing we used to do is it wouldn't take us 24 weeks to train for a race. It would take us 10 weeks or 12 weeks, right? Because we just increased the intensity so high, it was either sort of make it or break it. Right. Which, you know, is valid, but typically it's probably a high 50 percent chance of getting injured. Yeah, there's a 50 percent chance of getting injured. And the thing is, is that we were all racing at a plateau that we could never get over and we didn't understand it because we were always training at that plateau and we weren't teaching our bodies how to get stronger longer. I remember for me, an average workout was to go out and run five miles out in 610 or 615 and then five miles back at 545 or something and then not understand why I wasn't getting any faster racing. And we did that every day. You just can't go on a performance at race level every day of the week and expect to get better. But that's something we learned, you know, years later. Yeah, and the other thing that's different now is that there's a lot more older athletes, right? And again, it's a time scale thing, right? So you're not just training for that one marathon effort. You're training for your life. And if you put that kind of volume and intensity in for more than, I would say more than six months, your chances of getting injured in a way that's going to knock you back for a year or two uh, get really high, right? Yeah, because as we get older, we don't recover as quickly. I can't run seven days a week anymore. I mean, the bottom line is I just can't do it because my body doesn't recover. And you're right, it's an injury waiting to happen. So as an older athlete, the biggest focus is on how do I recover? Where do I get gains in what I want to do without hurting myself? And that's why we understand so much more about cross-training, why runners don't cycle more, I don't understand, why runners don't swim more, especially when I'm talking 50-plus-year-old runners, why they don't do that more to aid in their recovery while, in fact, increasing their fitness levels and reducing their chance for injury. It makes no sense to me. I remember, and you know, I have a guy who I train in, who, in Minnesota who he hated to swim, but he's one of our faster guys and that we trained back in the day. 
And when I taught him how to swim, he started running better uh, just yeah. because he wasn't beating his body up six days a week anymore. He was only running four days a week. We cut his mileage from 85, 90 miles a week back to a, a max in his peak training cycle of 65. We threw in a bike a week and a swim a week and, and the cross training for strength, and he became faster. Yeah. No, I always found that if I had a summer cycle, because I break it down into a spring, summer, and fall cycle, right? And then I take this time of year yeah. sort of off. But I always remember if I had a summer cycle with a target triathlon in June, July, or August, somewhere in there, right? That right. the fall cycle coming yeah. out of that was necessarily a shorter training cycle because then you're looking at an October race. So you really don't have a whole cycle there. But I always came out of those triathlon training cycles and competed much better in that fall, that shorter fall cycle. See what I'm saying? As opposed yeah. to coming off a running cycle where I was in peak running shape. Yeah, and, and it's amazing how that works. And it's also amazing how the, the reduction in injury happens from all that cross training. My triathletes that I train, who train more hours than any runner that I train, very seldom have overuse injuries because of the variation in the training and the different kind of workouts that they're doing all the time. And they're just not that, that repetitive pounding and repetitive pounding and repetitive pounding, which breaks their bodies down. They get on the bike and if you get on the bike and you can ride forever. I always tell people, if you run a marathon, any 10 year old can ride a bike 110 miles, right? But yeah. to them, it's, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's true. I'm an old runner from way back, and I say this to people when, when I have my marathoner say to me, I think I want to try a 70.3. I say, can you swim? And they say a little bit. I say, okay, fine. He said, you can run a marathon. You can ride a bicycle for 56 miles. You can ride a bicycle for 100 miles. The only thing that happens is your ass hurts. So yeah. It, yep. it, yeah. And But that actually allows them to get cardiovascular work in. They get to work different muscles in the legs and in the glutes, which aids in their ability to run better. There's so it many things that, that, yeah. that yeah, it balances. Yeah, you. yeah, and and I see increases in performance in my runners that way. And I had a girl this year who did her first. She's a marathoner and she's quick. She's a sub. She's I think her PR is a 307. We're training for Boston right now to try to go sub three. And she did her first Ironman and she got off the bike and she said, okay, you know, she never really rode before. She got off the bike and she ran a 327 marathon. And yeah. you know, I said and. And she was like, oh, my God. I said, well, you know, you're a runner. You got off the bike and you did what you know how to do. And I think that's important. It's, but now she's like all hell-bent on, you know, she wants to go to Kona. But she, I mean, she's, a, she's, a talent, she's a talented little athlete. And she never broke 20 minutes in a 5K before. And we have not done – we came out of Ironman Louisville. We went into a recovery phase for about four weeks. We came out. We went back in the base building for Boston. And she said to me, I'm running a turkey trot, and I've never broken 20 minutes in a 5K. I said, well, that's ridiculous. Just go out and run. And we didn't do any speed work at all, basically. And she went into that 5K and ran 19.08, just on having yeah. an increased base. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's all cumulative. And the, the balance helps a lot, especially in the shorter different distances. The balance helps a lot. I mean, the balanced um, muscle. You know, doing that triathlon yeah. strength thing gives you that balance. It helps a lot. So talk about the going back to the – we're doing sort of that base building and lower effort stuff now. What are the next phases for somebody if they have a an April, May, June marathon coming up or, well, a, think, or a triathlon or an effort? Yeah, as you get out of that, the first couple base phases where, you know, you've increased your efforts a little bit because you find out that you're getting stronger. You go into the build phase, and I'm a big fan of hill work, but smart hill work. A lot of people think that every time they go out and run hills, they have to be running it 
at anaerobic levels, and they don't realize that in the beginning, medium effort hill work is probably one of the best things you can do. I'm a big fan of hill work in the off-season if you run hills easily, because nothing builds strength and economy like running hills. And you get people out there, and they're doing, you know, 10 by 60 seconds, 10 by 90 seconds at a zone three effort up the hill, recovering, coming back down, and they do a series of hill repeats like that. I think in, in phase two, that's one of the most important things that you can do. And then to start throwing in medium effort fartlek work. And when I say medium effort fartlek work, again, we're zone three stuff. We're marathon race pace stuff, right? I always tell people zone three is pretty much your marathon race pace these days. So if you're doing that, again, you're preconditioning the body to go into the next phase of intensity to help reduce the chance of injury. And then that final phase is a lot of long tempo, right? Yeah, you know, and the, the last couple phases of training is something that over the years has been, I think, ignored by a lot of people, and that's race specificity. How many times I think have you heard me say to people, I want you to do this run on a course like is your, your A race course, and I want it, you're going to have these long aerobic threshold sessions. If you're out on a three-hour run and two hours and 30 minutes of it are at aerobic threshold, now you're in that race specificity and you're getting your body ready. I know back in the early days of periodization, race specificity was something that we pretty much ignored, right? And people on race day would get there and they'd ask their body to do something more than it had done before and it couldn't do it. So I think the long aerobic threshold sessions, whether you're a marathon or an Ironman or whatever, are the sessions that are going to now take that, you know, incredible cardiovascular strength that you have and use it to teach your body how to carry that cardiovascular strength for 26 miles. And that's the translation there is sort of these longer step-up runs during the week and then a long run with pace training in it, right? So you're doing a big block like a Let's say it's a three-hour run. You're doing an hour of that in zone three and an hour of that in maybe zone 3.5 to 4, something like that, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Or, any, or anywhere that, that long aerobic threshold session is anywhere from the zone 3 to zone 3.5 to, for those who don't really understand their heart rate zones are still running by pace, and they can think, okay, I'm gonna, that session needs to be at 5 seconds to 10 seconds faster than your, your next A-race goal. Yeah. And that's going to help you condition your body for race day a lot better. Yeah, and that's a serious workout, the equivalent effort level of your race almost. The only thing you're missing is that last 10K. Well, again, that depends on who you are. If I send one guy out with a three-hour run, he runs 24 miles. If I send another guy out with a three-hour run, he might only run 18 miles. It just depends on who they are. But again, it's the preconditioning of the body, and it's the real indicator of what you can do on race day, right? It's like, and I'm not going to name any names, but... Anyone who thinks they can gauge their marathon time by their 5K time is absolutely belongs in a sane asylum because you just can't do that. Because none of us know what's going to happen to our bodies at mile 20, right, or mile 22. There's the indicator of where you're at. And you can't gauge that by any 5K or 10K. You can only gauge that by your long runs. So if you come through your long run, and I tell people all the time, at the end of a training cycle, if you have a great long run, guess what? You still probably have a little bit more pace left in you on race day because now we're going to heal. Sometimes I hear this, well, coach, my long run was a little worse than it was four weeks ago. I said, well, that's okay. You're 20 weeks into a training cycle. That's going to happen. Your body's tired. But that's what taper is about, right? Taper is about letting the yeah. body recover, replenish, heal up all those little torn microfibers, and get to the starting line ready to go, and then your performance increases. I say this to everyone who's listening. If you have a bad long run that doesn't get you the results that you think you should have at that 20-week point in your cycle, it's only natural. Your body's broken down. Yeah. 
Yeah, and then that's typically coming at the end of a pretty big week, too. So, oh, yeah. you know, you're going yeah. into that pretty fatigued to begin with. Yeah. And oh. so it's it's hard. And I've been there, and then you get out into that second step up, and you just can't do it. You fail. Psychologically, yeah. that's hard because it reminds me a lot of tanking in a marathon, right? It's right about the same point. Right. Yeah. You mentioned step-up runs all the time because you know I'm a big fan of step-up runs. And but I, I've always said that's the key to the Kenyan success. They run from the midpoint of their training cycle to race days, long step-up runs are what they do. And it just teaches the body how to finish. That's the bottom line. Yeah. It teaches the body yeah. how to finish. When you're tired and you're asking for that extra effort, again, I say this all the time, it's your mind that quits before your body does. And if mentally you've been there before and you've pushed through that before, you can do it again. Your legs don't control your mind. Your mind controls your legs. So the more mentally conditioned you are by running through that hard stuff, when that hard stuff comes again on race day, you're able to say, okay, I can push through this. I've done it before. And you do it. That whole psychological approach to coaching and running and training, and I think a lot of people don't get to. I mean, it's just, look, there has to be a time in the cycle where you push yourself and you challenge yourself yeah. mentally as much as physically. Yeah, and I think you got to, uh, it, it puts a lot of focus on being mentally prepared for the training efforts. Because I can remember a lot of those long runs where I went in tired or mentally exhausted and they just didn't go well. Right. It makes your training is almost as intense as your uh, as your racing. So it's kind of the kind of the, you got to bring yourself to every training session, which is hard sometimes in a busy life. So yeah. But anyhow. Yeah, especially at the end. Of, uh, especially at the end of a training cycle, you say, "Oh my God, I'm so tired. I don't want to do this run today." Right. Right. Yeah. And then you get out there, and it's a giant run, and you're like, ah, you know. I know. I've had my best runs physically and mentally on, on my worst days going out the door. I, I don't know how that happens, yeah. but it seems like that's the way it works. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to let you go. Thanks for the coaching, Coach. What's next for you? Oh. you got any big plans? Yeah. We just got into the uh, United Airlines Half Marathon in New York City. So oh, okay. Yeah, we're going to run that. I'm thinking about the 70.3 in Chattanooga, and I'm already signed up for Ironman Lake Placid. So. That's my year coming up. That's a tough race. All right. Good for you. Um, All right. All righty. So great to talk to you. We'll talk Good soon. talking to you. Thanks, Chris. All Have right. a great day. You too. Bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Inner peace. It's that time of year. It's that season where people are stressed Ironically, the time of year where you are supposed to be celebrating family and togetherness is when there is the most stress. The holidays are where, even if you're not prone to stress, you start to feel it. Unfortunately, this time of year is also statistically the breaking point for people who do have issues with anxiety or depression. And the days are short where I am. The shortest of the year, the sun rises after 7 a.m. It sets around 4 p.m. So if you're in the working world, you may only see sunshine at lunch if you're lucky. The weather is cold and yucky. People tend not to get outside as much. You've got the stress of family and the holidays. Your training and racing is in a low period. How do you practice inner peace during these stressful times. I mean, even if you're not prone to stress and anxiety, this season is full of social landmines that can trigger you. How about that office Christmas party? How about forced interaction with your relatives? And even if you're working on it, 
Even if you've already got a quiet mind practice in place, you can still be triggered out of your peace and into anxiety. So what to do? Now, I'm going to share a dream with you. (laughs) A dream I had this week. It was an awful stressful dream. So here, picture this. I was in an office surrounded by people in chairs. I was seated uncomfortably in a chair, sort of in the middle. So there were people around me. There was no desk or table. It was like just in an office. And apparently I was there for a job interview and I was wearing a suit and tie. No one else was wearing a tie. One of the men, and they were all men, was noticeably in charge. None of them were saying anything to me, just some murmured asides and comments. And we were apparently waiting for more people to join. Uh, I was able to determine that I was there for an interview, but I had no idea why or what the interview was for. All I could do was sit there uncomfortably and worry. It, it felt like the prelude to an interrogation. I was very anxious. I was worried that my posture wasn't confident. I was worried that I was unprepared. I was worried that when they started, it would be just me fielding questions about myself. The power dynamics were awful. The man in charge was distracted and not the least bit empathetic. There I was, stuck in this stressful situation, wondering what I should do. And this was what my subconscious served up to me for breakfast. That's when I woke up. And since I had this dream right before I woke up, and it was so chock full of anxiety, I remembered it in detail. And once I was awake, I began to think about it. And what would I do if I found myself in this situation in the real world? And as I thought about it, I realized that it really wasn't that bad. And it wouldn't be that bad to be in this situation. I would just accept it for what it was, and I would act. I would turn the tables, so to speak. I might stand up and start introducing myself around the room with handshakes and smiles. Maybe I'd pause at the man in charge and look him in the eye and say, Why am I here? What about me caused you to gather a room full of these fine gentlemen to meet with me? Because, worst case scenario, is I make someone mad or I get chucked out, but it would be on my terms, and that's a win. I would have regained my personal peace. And I tell you about this dream because it is an example of the type of triggering event that can drive you deep into anxiety. But anxiety is as much a choice as is peace. So as you practice your silence, it's okay to review these anxiety triggers and think about how you would bring your peace to them. The things you worry about that could happen but have not happened, can be prepared for during your inner peace practice. Here's the thing. Inner peace is not a thing or a destination. It's a practice and a journey. Just like running a marathon, it all starts one day when you take that first step. Just like all journeys, you get frustrated because you start and then you don't see results. Or your results don't compare to that smiling guru on Instagram. You think you must be doing it wrong or it doesn't work for you. You're missing the point. There is an inherent basic value in starting. Starting is an action. You're not doing it to change yourself or to change the world or to be just like that smiling guru. You are starting to start. 
And by starting, you honor yourself. You take time for yourself. You honor your journey. Just start. Little things done consistently lead to big things. Honor where you are. Start by settling down and focusing on peace. This is action. Sit down, calm yourself, turn everything off, focus on peace. When was the last time you truly felt peace? When was that time in your life that you felt an abundance of peace? Was it holding the one you love? Was it breathing deeply in a natural place? Bring that moment to mind. Cultivate that moment. Focus on that peace. Focus on those moments. You don't need to push the other anxieties away. They will naturally quiet down when you focus on peace. When those thoughts come into your mind, simply notice them and refocus on the moments of peace. Don't get caught up in trying to compare your journey, your moments. All you need to do is sit in stillness. Don't worry about what it's supposed to be like. Focus on peace. Where in your body do you feel that peace? Feel the peace with each intentional inhale and give back that peace to the world with each intentional exhale. Be intentional in your thoughts. Be peaceful. This is your journey. This is your moment. Honor yourself. Because successful people handle stress. How do they handle stress? They expect and prepare for stress triggers and change. They know it's a journey, and they work to be okay with that. So be okay with it. There is no steady state or destination. There are only moments. Even your moments of peace will change. So cultivate peace. Actively seek peace. Focus on your choice, not on your restrictions. It's your choice to honor yourself and sit in silence. It is your choice to focus on peace. You are taking action. It's a process, but you are choosing action by cultivating peace. And I'll leave you with some advice I saw today from Dr. Glover, who wrote No More Mr. Nice Guy, one of my favorite books, and has some good online courses you can take around cultivating positive emotional tension in relationships. And this was in response to a question about how to manage a stressful relationship event. But I think it holds true to any trigger you might have through the holidays. So Dr. Glover counseled the questioner to notice, breathe, take a look at your story you're telling, practice leaning back, tell yourself that no matter what happens, you will handle it, redirect your thoughts, have fun, be bold, repeat. Enjoy your holidays. Honor yourself. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Well, my friends, you have made it, hopefully without any undue chafing or stinkiness, to the end of the Run Run Live podcast, episode 4-421. Peace be with you. Go in peace. I am still in my down phase in my training, just running two to four days a week keep my miles in the, you know, mid-30s a week. And I started working some core work and some yoga back into the off days. And boy, it is amazing how fast you lose your fitness when you take a couple weeks off. 
Those first couple core workouts, I was sore as heck afterwards. It's amazing. I did race Mill Cities, the Mill Cities Relay last week. It's one of my traditional things. And I took the first leg personally. It's about five and a half miles. Uh, The challenge was that we woke up to a very cold weather. It was about one or two degrees Fahrenheit when my leg kicked off. But it was sunny and there was no wind, so it wasn't uncomfortably cold. But the air was super dry, and I had a real hard time breathing, getting any uh, any air in. It just kind of hurt to breathe because it was so cold and so dry. As is my habit, I went out too fast and <laughs> struggled a bit in the middle miles. Not my best race ever, but I just kept reminding myself of how lucky I am to be able to get out and do this and how there are plenty of people in my age group who would kill to be able to do this. My team ended up averaging... Just over seven minute miles across the 27 miles of the course, which is respectable for our over 50 crew, but still only put us fifth in our age group. Yep, that's that's the uh, quality of the the uh, the age groups around here. Most importantly, though, we had a blast and it was a beautiful day. Really a privilege to be able to run with those guys, have some fun, really enjoyed myself. So the next up for me is the Groton Marathon, an entirely made-up race on the morning of the last Sunday in December. The story here, the backstory, is that when I was running my Marathon a Month routine in 2013-2014 in response to the Boston Marathon incident that year, my December marathon got canceled due to weather. So I made up my own marathon, grabbed some friends, and just did it. My life, my rules. Now we're seven years in and still doing it. I've got a handful of folks signed up. It's a casual run around the towns on back roads with no fuss. I'm not in any kind of shape this year, so it will be slow. But we'll have some good cheer, some good conversations, take some pictures, and celebrate that we live in a world where you can make up your own marathon and have people show up to join you. And with that, Ollie and I will see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. Okay, there's your silence. Now I will do uh, the the recording for the podcast. You ready? Here it is. All right. Let's get started here. Oh, just when I start, the dog starts whining. Or nish, nish, nich, nich, nich.